episode of Colubrid and Colubrid Radio. Zach here, as always, and with me is Matt. How's it going, Matt? Oh, man, I'm exhausted. It's Friday. <laughs> it's been driving every day. I'm yeah. like a road warrior as of late. But... Tell our dedicated <laughs> listeners how many miles you drove this week in the great oh. state of Indiana and whatever other states you went to. Jeez, I think I'm over 2,000 miles yes. from Monday through Friday. Yeah, that, so, that new job's it's pushing you. Oh, <laughs> uh, but you know what? I wake up every day with a smile on my face. So yes, can't can't beat that one. All well and good. Yeah, so we're gonna do a brief. I think we're we're, we're okay with a brief update because it really hasn't been that long since we recorded last. But in that interim, um, you know, I went and go ahead and I just decided to get COVID over that little bit of break. So I yay, am part of the mass infected um but since i let science guide my decision making processes i had all three shots so for me covid amounted to a head cold and i didn't even really know i had had covid until um all the students around me were popping positive and i was asking them what are your symptoms and they were like uh i just have a head cold i was like uh crap so i did the responsible thing Went and t- took an at-home test. It said negative. Didn't believe it because of the damn head cold. Got a PCR test, and sure enough, it was positive. I was supposed to be in the field last week, and the idea of being in confined small vans with other students, well, not with other students, with my students and possibly getting them sick was not cool. So I'm, I'm happy I did that. But the only symptom that I got was the brain fog, which is real. And I don't think it should be referred to as a brain fog. Uh, it... I feel like COVID's almost like that fungus cordyceps that like takes over the brain of its host and makes it do things. And one of the ways that I knew I had COVID, I was I was sitting here at the desk. I'm at school recording this, and you know, on the chair of my department. So first week of school, I got five. I have five million things I've got to do, and I was reading the list, and I literally like was thinking, yeah, I'm just not doing that. I'm not going to do that either. I think I'm going to go eat a cookie. Like that's the way my brain was working. And that is not like me. And that's what led me to think, all right, something's wrong. And that getting motivated, you know, I'm a very motivated, energetic guy, but like, strangely, I think I'm the only person that may have benefited from COVID because it chilled my ass out. And I've been living a nice life since, you know, so there's the, there's the, um, not to make this political or go any route like that, but if you wanted a reason to get all three shots, I got the pandemic or sorry, I got the disease that's wiping out our species, and I came out of it feeling literally good. So um, that happened. Uh, brumation, full swing. Uh, it's getting real cold here, dropping down to like four, three. I think we're at negative one soon. So this morning I woke up. Thank God for Govies. Uh, I saw the good. I'm okay with them getting down to like 45. When they get to 40, I'm like, eh. When I saw 37 on the Govi, I was like, oh, crap. So got down there and moved everybody to the middle of the garage, and um, they're all fine. So there's proof that you can't just, like, do the brumation thing and forget about them because I'd have a bunch of dead snakes, I'm pretty sure. We're going to drop low freezing in that corner of the garage, the infamous corner. Um, So that's that. And then the big thing, because I keep doing this at the end, and I need to do it at the beginning. So I mean this when I say this, listeners. If you are a fresh college graduate... I am looking for a student for the herpeticulture lab. I've got a lot of ideas. We have the funding to see those ideas to fruition. We may talk about an idea or two tonight. 
So uh, if you're interested in that and that's something you want to do, get your master's degree with a herpetology slant in herpetoculture, I'm totally game. I'm looking for a solid student. So reach out to me. Lots of people do. Don't be shy. Uh, we're all snake nerds. I'm a snake nerd. You know, if you've listened to the podcast, you know, Matt and I are snake nerds. That's, that's like, I think we're the only podcast that talked about hormone cascades for Christ's sake. So <laughs> anyway, so that's, that's, that's what's up with me. Uh, Matt, besides driving all over the Midwest, <laughs> what's well, up in your world? You know what? Um, quite the opposite in terms of formation here. I mean, in Indiana, I mean, our temperatures are jumping all over the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, this past week, we've had 45 degrees. Um, mm. I mean, today it was in the 30s. So it's kind of interesting in terms of respect to how this winter season is going. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that we've often talked about and things of that nature were light cycles, feeding, as well as temperature in terms of dropping. And, you know, over the past couple of years, I've I've only really been able to get the animals down to about 58 degrees and hold them constant for about three months. And I've had very good success using that methodology. But, you know, it, the way that weather patterns are working right now, it's kind of like Indiana is being held outside of that Arctic bliss, if you will. I mean, left or right of us and south it's like winter wonderland uh but no uh, all joking aside i mean um most of the stuff is down for the the winter and just kind of enjoying and playing a little bit of catch up and trying to plan some projects in terms of respectively what my focus is going to be in the next couple of years and try to redirect some of that focus for selectively breeding some different traits this upcoming year to bring out some of the different colorations and just patterns of some of the animals, but also thinking long-term, you know, project-wise, which animals I'm going to continue to pursue and which animals I may start to reduce off of numbers, especially for my long-term goal of breeding every species of a before I die, but hopefully not a COVID. Yeah. <laughs> well, we don't want that to happen. I'd have to find a new co-host, man. That would suck. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, you know, we want you to live for other reasons as well. So anyway, okay. Well, that all sounds well and good. It's kind of weird that you're not getting blasted uh, with, with the cold weather. Because over here in West Virginia and the Mid-Atlantic, we're just getting slammed. We had, you know, Christmas to New Year's was basically spring. And now we're in, I mean, we're, we're actually below average now. It's nuts. We're, we're talking like quite literally 70 degree spread in two months, which is nuts for us anyway. Okay. So are we ready to jump in? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Right. So our guest tonight needs no introduction. I've heard him referred to as the NPR Network Historian. I think that's a pretty good title. Um, he knows all things. So herpetoculture and we're freaking excited and pumped to have him with us tonight so we have rob stone with us tonight uh lots of people here rob talk about rhino rats we have every intention of having a rhino rat episode with rob on it but we thought we would shake things up and uh you know talk to rob about another colubra that he has ample experience with that definitely has a a night a following matt loves them to death i have a couple of them myself 
and that is the bamboo rat. So Oreo cryptophis, por- I can never say the species name, Porphyracea. There, I think I got it out. So how are you? I'm Mr. excellent. Stone? Yeah, thank you very much for having me, and I'm happy to talk about porphies. Yeah, they're certainly awesome snakes. I'm, you know, Matt's doing the Lord's work at this point, and so uh, <laughs> you know, I'll just I'll just help him out a little bit, trying to remember some of the some of the details, and I because I know he'll he'll be doing the same for me. Excellent. So before we jump into the the Porphy talk, uh, you know, you've been on several podcasts and we talked about this before the episode was on tonight that we don't necessarily need to spend time on the Bob Rock introduction to herpetoculture piece because that's been on NPR and THP and you know other places. So uh, I wanted to spend more time just talking about talking herpetoculture, you know, all that jazz. And one of the questions that we always ask people is, what about colubrids makes you a colubrid keeper? So I, I know that you have a diverse collection. Um, if you would, would, you've kept boas, you've kept pythons, you've kept lizards, you know, all that jazz. But when it comes to colubrids, what about colubrids do you like? What do they bring to your herpetoculture table? I think I really like the diverse, obvious, you know, same as a lot of people are going to say the diversity, but also kind of inherent maybe in that diversity is actually flexibility, right? So some of the diversity implies that they're in unique environs or they're responding to particular stimuli in those environments. But I think also for the most part, especially they sort of have broader baseline parameters, I think, than a lot of uh, boas and pythons that have a, a much narrower range of acceptable conditions so that you can feed them a lot or you can feed them a lot. You know, you can do a heavy food cycling situation that can involve feeding them every day for two or three months of the year and then effectively or actually not feeding them the entire rest of the year. Or they have the capacity to be the classic uh, pet, single pet reptile that gets fed one defrost mouse every week and eats the whole year through. Uh, even feet charging on through the the winter changes and everything else that's going on, getting those inputs and they just keep on plowing ahead. Um, so I think those, right. those are kind of the, you know, the two, two things that really appeal to me. Obviously there's a whole host of different ones and that implies um, adaptation to different things and that makes them special, but they're also just so, so generally so willing to, to engage. And then when you're talking diurnal one, which is probably most of them being diurnal, they tend to make really great displays and be super interactive to you too. If you walk in the room, whether it's a garter snake, an indigo, a rhino, whatever it's going to be, that they're really reactive to you coming in. They're looking at you. Hopefully it's a downer on the Pataeus because it just means that that's their warning signal and they're going to hide away. So those are kind of a bummer to me, but on an indigo, uh, conversely, or a rhino, it means they're you're probably you coming in they'll, they'll see you barely coming in and that's a stimulus to to actually come come out and see if they can get some food off here or otherwise get get an interaction yeah i think that matt and i the interaction aspect's definitely part of it for us as well so no very very cool so uh just to kind of give some background because i i love your collection i haven't seen it yet love to see it uh, but could you kind of explain the process that you undergo at this point in your herpetocultural career? What, what does an animal have? What's your process in deciding what makes it into the room? Like, is there, is it just an impulsive thing or do you have like, there's knowledge, then there's wisdom and, you know, you get wisdom through experience. Like how, 
how do you have Candoya and then the the Kilobatrachus, or I don't know if I'm saying that right, but the Jamaican boas, I think, is what you have, right? And then Rhino, like, it's it's not eclectic. It's just badass. So, like, how did you make that decision to have those particular species? I think a lot of it, and it it's actually, you know, it's funny. To some extent, I think people, there's a, there's a bad reputation in herpiculture, just, you know, as with anything in life of people saying, oh, you're jumping into and out of things, or, um, oh, this, I think... I think where that negativity usually comes from is people, um, you know, saying getting into something and being really excited about it for a week or two weeks or a month, and then hopping out of it, as opposed to t- with the the view that I would advance to people that are just trying stuff, or maybe I think we're seeing part of the colubrid explosion, right? As people moving from start came in with a fixed idea of I'm going to keep this one thing, kind of to in a way that didn't happen even 20 or 25 years ago, where just we would absorb all the content we would get. So you get Reptiles Magazine or Vivarium Magazine, mm-hmm. and you're looking at that, and you they're not focused on a single item. You know What comes to mind is ball pythons. Maybe corn, you could make an argument about corn snakes, boas, uh, true boas, um, that sort of stuff. I would... I would advise folks to try a ton of different things. Just maybe just don't run your mouth about how the best thing is the thing you've had for a week. You could try stuff, <laughs> you know, see how it goes. And it, there will be things that work well for you. Essentially, you know, we, we talk about Eric and I joke about uh, things in the context of saying, Oh, those things suck. Well, they don't suck, but they suck relative to my expectations and my desires, but you kind of have to try different things and come to learn both the truth of those animals and the truth of yourself. So you need to try different yeah. things. So most, most of the stuff that I have now, if not all the things that I have now are things that I've had before. And when I had many more things or had before and got rid of, um, save for, yeah, the Puerto Rican boas and the Jamaican boas. Uh, I wanted those from the first reptiles magazine I ever read. Maybe the second, so the first non-annual, the second non-annual reptiles magazine I read was the, April or so, 1998, reptiles and uh, Puerto Rican bows were in there as something that was not entirely unavailable, right there, CITES-1, ESA, endangered, uh, entirely unavailable. But it was someone in Puerto Rico just talking about them as the bo- the boas, more or less, that, that exist in their environs. And so from, from that moment forward, those were something that I thought – man, someday I'd love to get the opportunity to work with those. And it turns out there are people, you know, you you can't sell them. It's all a gift situation. There's no reciprocity. There's no nothing. You know, it's just mm-hmm. um, it became something that was like, wow, if I ever get the opportunity to work with those, I'd really like to. And it turns out they're awesome, you know, as, <laughs> at least relative to what I like. I don't. And maybe mm-hmm. some of the colubrid stuff is like this too, where I, I don't mind getting musked. You know, it's not yeah. that I'm seeking it out, but it's not, I know some people it's really a problem. Whereas for me, it's, it's not really a problem. Um, I love Nerodia. I love garter snakes. You know, the episode you guys did with Rob Shea was fantastic. Was really excited about that. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's sort of my, to my taste and uh, Jamaican boas are, you know, similarly, I guess certainly they're, Eh, related-ish, they're not as close as we once thought based on their, you know, the physiology suggests something more than the the DNA actually suggests. But um, those are just amazing. They all look calico with all these different colors and they're beautiful. 
But as captive animals to keep, Jamaican boas, you know, they're, so they're these pretty beautiful snakes, right? But they, mm-hmm. uh, they're generally kind of fussy feeders. They're far more likely to musk. They're not very likely to bite you, but they're pretty likely to musk you. Um, and people, the, the general population is like, man, those are the best. But no, to me, the Puerto Rican boas are the best. I get it that they're just somewhere between a, a brown to a light brown to purple, have some yellows to completely black, but a very iridescent, beautiful black coloration. But I tell you what, those things, that's a snake that stands up for itself and engages in, in uh, nightly hunting behavior just the way it does in front of caves. If you have those set up in cages, they'll hang down just looking for a, a small meal. They, they like that small stuff just to mimic you know, seemingly to mimic eating bats in the wild. They're just, they're just bad. You know, they're just bad. You know, and if you see them at night, mm-hmm. they're actually not as bad as you would think. But if you wake them up during the day that if they're going to bite you anywhere, they're going to take a shot for your eyes. Cause they're looking at you and they're paying attention and they'll give you a shot. But I respect the hell out of that. You know, those to me yeah. are just so, so cool, you know? And the, so those, yeah. those are a little bit of an exception. Um, rhinos, you know, it's same thing. We'll get into the porphy stuff. I, same as everybody was seeing those from the mid nineties with Klaus's stuff. And then pro exotics was hot and heavy, you know, with those, I bought the rhino collection from pro exotics when they moved on from them in to what, uh, early 2003, something like that. Tom and I bought all of those animals that they, uh, that they had at that time. And I've, that's the only thing that I've had continually ever since that time. Um, so there's hmm. things have come and gone and then you, the Candoia, I'd never had them before, but maybe I seven or so then they were gone, right? This is one of the, in the early, they weren't available. And then in the early nineties, they were imported by the, an amazing truckload considering that they come from these two small islands in the Solomon Island chain, but literally thousands were imported over, uh, you know, a thousand a year for four or five years. And then there weren't any more. Um, they first, they sort of came back available for the first time in at least a decade. Cameron had some. Uh, and I got some of those animals just because, again, that was a thing that I had missed the window of when they were available. So yeah. it was just, hey, let's try these. These are something that's talked about, not necessarily valued, but talked about. And I've had those since then. You know, they, they turned out to be really cool and really responsive. And kind of in the same way, people say, oh, they're so tame. I tell you what, uh, reach in there at night under a red bulb when they're in a feeding season. And that's a very a very powerful snake that is quite willing to give you a bite. Um, and you won't forget, I've been bit twice, you know, over seven or eight years or whatever. I've been bit twice and yeah, they're really strong they look kind of diminutive and frail, but they're really strong and they got some heavily recurved teeth. Um, but it's funny because to me, that's what, I guess we've gone all over the map here. I'm, I apologize for that, but the, my, the reaction, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the reaction would be that uh, all of them have different appeals to me. And while I recognize they all have things that might make them more or less of a challenge and might make them a good or a bad fit for someone else, you know, there isn't one perfect, perfect fit. They all have at least one thing that really appeals to me, all the stuff that I have right now. And many of them have, you know, it's really, if you looked at it on, on balance, you'd say, wow, most of the things that they do that are peculiar to them are appealing or fit into the way that I'm enjoying keeping stuff at this point. Well, and that, you know, I think brings up the next thing. I mean, cause you've kept these animals in a variety of different situations and setups. I mean, 
what's the current means of keeping in your collection? Yeah, hundred percent. I, I've moved. Well, and I think this is another natural thing and maybe even more so for folks that are kind of in, in our window or more recent is that I'm of the time when a lot of the, the glamor or, um, significance was given to people who are producing stuff um and kind of have big collections and have all these different things and um you know commercial aspect to it but whether you know bob applegate through and he was you know to me even he he doesn't really fit in that box because he was so just his positivist attitude about a whole host of different things and um but from and doing it a different way, right? Not doing it in racks, but rather the quote Applegate style enclosures, very similar to some of the European design, but with the the modularity to the bottom and given different different accesses. I think uh, I've gone through cycles of having a lot of animals, and a lot sometimes that's a lot to keep and produce from. Sometimes it's a lot to uh, have as you know turning over, getting stuff uh, principally from Cameron. Um, you know, just being local to him, particularly at the time when he was bringing in a lot of stuff, just the opportunity to see a ton of different animals. But, you know, there's another box coming in two weeks and to have the money to buy something in that box, something has to go, there has to be an in for the out, you know, to have, to have the money to do that. So went through some of that at this point, that's not happening. I'm really happy with all the stuff I have. And honestly, I'm not sitting here, um, pining to add something different and so i'm really just trying to instead focus on really enjoying the stuff that i have um and so that means cages and mm-hmm. trying to uh, so the room all the cages have lights on or in them depending on the setup uh, i do still have some that are in tubs just based on kind of where we're at status wise you know and obviously on some of this stuff if you're trying to participate effectively as you know, effectively as a, a um, hobby SSP, if not, and some, on, to some extent, actually involved in the SSP for some of those BOA things, it's kind of like, well, I, I can't send these things out, you know, at least these particular ones, the offspring, you know, or different things. Okay, that makes sense, but you have to keep some number to it. Um, but the room fixture is red bulbs, so that, and I have the, um, all the, ca- the lights that are on the cages timed up, uh, and this, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to this, I'm sure, but sort of the cosmic octopus idea of whether we need to replicate our do, and it wouldn't be possible, right? So I'm keeping Solomon Island critters. Uh, I have a couple carpet pythons. I have uh, northern Mexican pines, the Depi Depi. I have rhinos. Um, let's see, Jamaican, Puerto Rican boas. So a lot of uh, th- equatorial or within a you know certain range, right? Uh, Limitation. I guess there's some similarity there, but the the point being that I, if your entire room has to mimic the conditions of a particular one, you're going to struggle in a way that if you figure out sort of baseline parameters that will work for all the things, you can then hammer the things where we have some flexibility. And I would argue that uh, annual light cycles is one of those areas. Maybe humidity is too to a lesser degree. Certainly temperature. There are base minimums, but Heck, I, I know you guys know from field herping and just going out into into nature that the 
impression that's been created, right? That that things only survive within this very narrow band that I think really is a function of people keeping bows and pythons, not keeping colubrids, um, has people way worried about lower temperatures, uh, intermittent lower temperatures than they need to be. Well, no, and, you know, Rob, even talking about this, I mean, you know, in some of our like side chats and things like that, you know, even with some of the bows and pythons that I, I have here just for fun, I mean, I keep them a lot cooler than a number of people. And I think some of that even has to do with some of the means of people saying, no, we need care sheets. Yeah. Right. That's kind of yeah. like, that's like the minute someone brings up care sheet in a conversation with me about acquiring animals, that's pretty much like, whoa. Right. This conversation it's a, it, has just ended. Yeah. Right. It's it's a it's a warning to say it there needs to be right an exchange of ideas to help you figure out what is permissible a baseline permissible to what's happening. But yeah, you're not going to replicate all the th- all the peculiarities of your conditions, Matt. So there's no reason to it would be disingenuous for you to say, Oh, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, even your own situation isn't static relative to those conditions probably unless you know you're in a situation that you're not in terms of oh i have this zoo facility that is maintaining this very rigid structure in a way that uh something um a non-commercial space or a non a space that's not solely invested for that purpose just won't do and you'll be fascinated you know people would be fascinated to see even um you know all that boa stuff uh, my ambient temperatures will get down into the mid 60s, low 60s in the room, and have them off, uh, off heat or reduced heat, so that it maybe it's set at 73, you know, running over the night. Certainly not something that people maybe would expect a feed on. And you'll go in there, and all the boids are sitting there looking for a feed where the colubrids are shut down and and mm-hmm. have no interest. And it's like if you were to tell someone that you're doing this, I even. Uh, maintained for a buddy a bunch of ball pythons um and what i saw in those animals was really fascinating in terms of there's so much more you know plastic relative to what they can handle and are willing to do than people will give them credit for even in the same way right so this is something that i think i always try i've learned to try to not trivialize anything right even the stuff that we Mm -hmm. we think of as common um whether it's the pet bearded dragon at the school right you bring that home i haven't had i don't think i've ever had a bearded dragon of my own actually amazingly enough i've had all sorts of you know fancy fancy things i I don't think i've ever had a beard if you actually set it up in a way that promotes its natural behavior that's awesome brown and knolls are awesome if you actually set them up to foster foster them to do well uh and and watch the behaviors they'll engage that all as much as i say in on the one hand, all all reptiles have some peculiarities that might make them suited or ill-suited for a given keeper. They also all have fascinating behaviors. It's just a question of whether they're ones that we can watch with the way that we want to keep our animals. Well, and that, that kind of brings into a whole different facet here, I think, in terms of specialized keepers or colubrid keepers even, too, or people that are looking for new species to keep is it's the intellectual curiosity and trying to watch the animal and adapt to that animal and provide those types of resources, whether it's documenting, you know, I mean, at at heart bringing into context all the episodes that we've had up to today, 
I mean, we've always talked about, you know, note keeping, keeping, watching, adjusting, and all of those respective parameters. And that's a big part of this that a lot of people don't take to heart. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, it's, and I would encourage people actually, so I keep my entire collection on a single sheet that uh, I enter into Excel, you know, is maintained in Excel, and then I print it out, and I write the notes, and then I re-enter that information. And it's not, um, you know, into the into the sheet after sort of as, as it comes to me, but it's going to be after three or four or five entries. I don't do the, the Pro Exotic specified date. That turns into way too many cards for me. You know, it, it's not necessary. Instead, I just have a blank, and then, okay, now there is an entry for January 20th. Okay, and I'll write that. And if there's anything pertinent for anything that I happen to see, I'll write it on there. And then it might be, rather than having it be just January as its own card, maybe it'll be January 26th before I happen to notice anything else that justifies adding another notation and doing this. And yeah, it's fantastic to be able to sit there and I have on a single clipboard the entirety of the records associated with my room for the last going on five years in, you know, right at my immediate disposal, just flip through the flip through the pages there as to everything. And, you know, it's really practical compared to uh, at least for someone whose collection isn't huge, you know, and then maybe it turns into, well, this is the clipboard for this rack or for this room or for the, these types of animals or whatever it would be, as opposed to, you know, Again, I'm sure with you guys, I don't even know what, what systems you're using now, but whether it's a, each one has their own card or there's a card for each set of things, each group of species or uh, whatever it might be. But that's what I've found. And 100%, you know, I've always been a note taker on that stuff and it's critical and, and beautiful to be able to look at it and say, okay, this, this boa that I think is doing this thing. What did it do three years ago, the last time I observed this activity? And the other, actually, I mean, that prompts me. The other thing that's really helpful is having groups of things. So even though I'm sort of encouraging people to not have, uh, maybe to have smaller collections and really enjoy them, if you have a bank of cages where you have four females of the same thing and you have uh, an adjoining space, you know, four or five, six males, whatever it is, and you're able to engage with them and watch their behavior and you say uh, that was the thing with the solomon island tree bows when they the female produced three years ago is i had three fem i did the same thing in terms of pairing them up and try they'd all obviously gone through the same temperature variations all the uh, all the octopus tentacles right had, we'd run through all the same things one of them acted differently to the other three and that wound up being the one that became gravid you know ovulated became you know gravid and uh, produced offspring. I couldn't find anyone who could tell me what the actual distance between post-ovulation shed and partuition was. Uh, it turns out for me on that litter, it was 205 days. So there's 205 days of, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? Just really attuning to it saying, okay, there was the first month that I, she hid away on heat. Then she's sitting out, she's diurnal basking under a UVA bulb while the other ones, this is not their normal behavior. And the other ones are all doing their normal behavior. And now uh, she looks irregularly lumpy. Okay, this is probably, you know, everything seems to be progressing, whatever. And and you just kind of write it out. But the fact that I had four of them that were in the exact same spot and I'd done the exact same things with, and I could look at it and say, well, three of you went back to doing what you normally do. And one is not. Certainly something's happening. Whatever, Whether it be mm -hmm. it's good, bad, or indifferent, 
something is going to happen here. Well, and that's really curious too, because, um, you know, just like many people when investigating a new species, they'll only pursue, pursue one pair. Yeah. You know, and it's really not the best way to try to cultivate or start working with a new species that may be uncommon for your collection or, and it, it becomes a numbers game at that point. 100%. And if anything, it all goes wrong, then, you know, yeah. you're, you're, it's <laughs> you're over. Done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So from I, that I've same found, perspective. Yeah. I don't know. Go ahead. What I do is I, if I'm getting into a, if I think I'm going to get into a species, I will buy the one pair. And it's almost like I'm, I'm testing out the car. And I know that one pair does not equate to the whole taxa. And my one pair could be the one pair on planet Earth that's horrible. <laughs> it could also be way cooler to keep than than the than the average. But uh, I will do that. And then basically, you know, if I find myself nerding out and I'm seeking out more information and I'm gravitating towards that animal, that's my process of deciding, yeah, these are going to enter the collection. And when I reach that point where they're going to enter the collection, that's when the infamous purple hoarder thing kicks into gear and it's like all right i have a pair and then one month later where did these 20 snakes come from like literally that that's what happened and what's really weird about me is that i'm at a weird point in my herpetoculture career because i was hardcore into this stuff but i was a keeper i was not a breeder back around 99 through 2004 when i was in college then i went to grad school life happened children houses job and i was not in doing any of this stuff, I just had a pet, the uh, Florida king snake, and then when I got back into it, when it literally became my job, which nineteen-year-old me cannot believe that this is my job, <laughs> like so. Uh, but then I decided, okay, we're going to do this right, and that, and 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 in doing it right, um, I oftentimes when I jump off that ledge, and then the forty whatever show up, I, I do this introspective thing, like, is this the right way? Do we need? 40 of these, because what you've mentioned, uh, Rob, the whole, like, it, the numbers game, and I know Matt and I both have substantial collections or manage substantial collections, but there are times when I think, what would it be like if I just pushed everyone aside and I just had, like, 5.8 water cobras, false water cobras, and just did, like, hardcore deep dive on this species and I know my personality, I'm, I've got herpetocultural ADD, and that's not going to ever happen. But at the same time, would I become like the ultimate falsy keeper? Because I'd become so in tuned to all aspects of their care the way I am. Uh, but I also, I, 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 I like diversity. So, you know, it's kind of a weird, weird dynamic. I think so, the other, yeah, that's my perspective. 100%. <laughs> I think the other thing that that reminds me of actually in talking about well what makes a, a room mixture or what you know why do why do you have the collection you have is i actually that that hits the nail on the head there is that i have something is always happening i have nocturnal yes. snakes and i have diurnal snakes i have things that are you know in, super responsive to what you're doing i have others that are less responsive that i like for for other reasons so you know have lizards and have all these different things so that something's always there's always some stimuli at a given time, as opposed to if you just have a bunch of Australian pythons, then you, nothing is happening during the day. It makes a ton of sense to have Australian, you know, goannas to have to have in the room too, because then you have 
you know, literally your own television program going on in the room, because otherwise, even whether it's for your own enjoyment, right, and you have the ability to come enjoy it during the day, or maybe sometimes you do, right? There's a holiday or whatever it might be. There's some something you can engage with during the day beyond having to take something out to do that, right? You can just sit there and enjoy it. Um, I think I think that is a big part of it. Is like actually fundamental diversity, so that you you do get that experience of I can walk in any time of the day and something is doing. I know you know when I walk in that a bunch of this stuff is not going to be doing anything, but hey, actually at this time, and even it's not so specific, right? Obviously, it's the middle of the day versus the middle of the night, but there's different things that are active right before and after, you know, right uh, right before and right, uh, well, right before in both contexts, right before the lights go on through just after, and then right before they go out and just after. There are things that are open, you know, and, and engaging in things in the full middle of the day, and then there are things that are uh, all night long. And I think that's yeah. that's an awesome thing to do. So having liking enough things that you can have that is really fantastic. And heck, if you can put up with doing fruit flies, having dart frogs, you know, dart frogs are fantastic. Yeah. But the bummer with them, right, is that you is just the bug thing in the sense that to me, you always there's no Goldilocks for fruit flies. You always either have too no. many or not enough. Um, you know, they're really, it's really hard to do. You have to just always have too many and feel like it's a waste and it's not working or you're going to come up short and it's going to be a problem. So if you can uh, accept that reality in your life, then add some frogs, add some noise, you know, get yeah. this, get this stuff. And those ha- require a beautiful display well not necessarily a beautiful display but a display and kind of push you in that way and and help you learn some of those skills as well yeah so you've mentioned it and i think this is a good segue the cosmic octopus i hear you talk about the cosmic octopus all the time and i always sit there and think like when you start going on the cosmic octopus discussion you definitely have me hook line and sinker i'm I'm in it because I totally love this idea. I love this concept. I know Matt likes this idea. And I think with colubrid keeping, there's all kinds of tentacles from the cosmic octopus invading our world. And that's part of the reason why we like these snakes so much. But I'd like it if you don't mind to just kind of explain what you mean by the cosmic octopus. Like, why is it cosmic? (laughs) And what are these tentacles doing? Like, what exactly is going on there when you make that statement? Yeah, so to me, it's just an expression really of the idea of our own limitations and how that interplays with our interactions with the natural world. I think it's, um, you know, there's a lot of hubris to the notion that we really understand a lot of what's going on. I think there are so many interconnected features in the world that are, you know, these interplay that are both in terms of regular items and then irregular, heck, when we have volcanic eruptions, the that's a huge disruptor event, right, to all sorts of natural processes that generally flow in a certain uh, relatively predictable way or way that we think we understand. And a lot of these things we do have, well, in general, human society, right, has has knowledge of a lot of these different things. It's incredibly rare, if not impossible, for a single person to have a great depth of knowledge about all of the different things that are going on. And then I'm sure there are interactions that people aren't considering just because it would literally, to my mind, the human brain isn't capable of understanding all the different complexities that exist in the in natural systems, particularly if you take 
sort of that cosmic view, right? If we're taking, if mm-hmm. everything matters, if we're going from lunar cycles. So this can, it's literally anything that's interacting in, in the, in nature. And to me, it actually raises an interesting point that I know we think of the, the context of pollution and this might sound strange, but the amazing part to me is how much we have polluted the earth and it still works. You know, people people talk about it in this kind. I I sort of have this reverse view of the situation. I'm just amazed. I'm continually impressed that all the abuse that's been, you know, the earth has been subjected to a ton of abuse and it still is work. You know, you can point out, oh, well, actually, we're seeing these changes and all of that is certainly true. But the fact that it has undergone what it's undergone and it's still where it's at and still functional to me is amazing and speaks really to interplays of different uh, factors that to me, it's just incredibly impressive. And I don't that, you know, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't suggest that I understand any, any real percentage of all the different interplays, right? We can look at these snakes and there are things, the triggers or light switches, you know, however you want to think about it of um, temperature, humidity, light cycling, even lunar cycling, uh, to the extent that we have windows in our collections or they're perceiving it, humidity, you know, ambient humidity, whether we're adding additional uh, literal moisture, right, rather than even just the ambient humidity conditions that are changing based on time of year, which reflects then whether we're putting heat on uh, or air conditioning, depending on where you're, where you are, what your resources are, how much we're feeding them, what prey mm-hmm. burst looks like, what burst feeding looks like, what power feeding looks like. What, uh, what we're putting into the rodents that are then being consumed by the snakes, whether we're adding additional uh, vitamins and you know minerals into those prey items, whether they're being – everyone, uh, when I hear in general a conversation around rodents and feeding rodents, it's, it's sort of there's a, a disdain for lab block represent – oh, that can't possibly be nutritionally complete relative to these things. And that, yeah, sure. I agree. The cosmic octopus suggests that's true because there's, you know, the rodents that they would be eating in this given place that that won't be representative of of what they're eating, let alone if we're talking about something that doesn't naturally eat rodents in the wild or doesn't eat this species of rodents. It maybe has a different body composition. Well, different uh, physiological composition. And that's before you even get into the body condition of the animals that you're feeding them. And are we feeding them uh, things that we've defrosted in water so that the whole thing is hypersaturated with water or are we feeding it sort of a dry jerky type thing that's having an effect to dry out the animals as, as they're going along. So to me, it's really just a reflection of what I don't know. It's kind of, when I talk about yeah. the cosmic octopus, it's me saying there's a ton, I'm recognizing, uh, not even recognizing all the unknown unknowns that I have, things that I know what they're known unknowns, you know, things that I, oh, I know that that's a thing that exists that I don't know about, but I'm freely admitting that there are things that I don't know about and I have no conception of, I don't even know that I don't know about them, but they're certainly happening and they potentially could have an impact. And that, again, that's why I don't, uh, anytime someone would suggest that we're really trying to mimic something as opposed to trying to define meets and bounds and find operative conditions we can work in, I think that's a little bit um, misguided because it, it just wouldn't mm-hmm. be possible. So we have to define 
okay, what are, what are tolerable parameters? And then you have to have an open mind to try and try different things and say, okay, what happens if we, you know, give rodents eggshells that we're feeding out? Is that producing a differential impact? What the, there's some sort of volcanic ash that, you know, people eat. I, I don't, I forget the, <laughs> Matt, do you remember what this thing's called? It's uh, something with oh, an M. Um, yeah. 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 This stuff. And so we went like through a period of time of, it. yeah, putting this stuff into, into all these different things and saying, okay, what's the, what's happening here? Or you get the, um, the reptilinks. Interesting idea. You know, it's not new, right? It goes back to, well, I even remember it from the T-Rex days from the mid nineties. Certainly there were plenty of ads associated with it. I'm sure it goes back even before that. I doubt that it would, it's one of these that's like, well, this isn't a novel idea. It doesn't make a bad idea. It doesn't mean I don't support the company. What I took it to mean was, Oh, I'm going to get some of these, you know, elk and fruit mixture and feed them to some Lamperpeltis and let's see what happens. What happens if, you know, half of what they're eating, because if you picture it in, if they are eating a wild rodent that's gorged on, you know, raspberries in the wild, like what's the impact mm -hmm. of that? The, the hard part is that they're so rigid that it, you have to really kind of, and, and calorically dense, right? So that something yeah. it's not, Oh, I'm going to feed it a link the size of a mouse a, because that mouse has a ton of pliability that the link doesn't have. So you need to feed something. If you picture it as like, okay, what's, what's this completely rigid item that it can swallow. Uh, then it has to be willing to take it. Which is I, I found on Lamperpeltis stuff about forty to fifty percent would take them, um, and you know quite happy, happily take them. The the real small stuff, as you talked about, I think it was with Chad. You guys were talking through the or no with with um, with Kathy Love right when she was on that. Yeah. Um, the real small ones, yeah, they just they're kind of a mess. Uh, you know, I think yes. there's some minimum size where they they're cased differently, and those are those are kind of a mess and a, a problem, but so we had a little bit of a, a hiccup here, and uh, we apologize about that. But uh, Rob was going on this tangent and writing a philosophical journal article on keeping <laughs> yes. related to the cosmic octopus, and obviously the world as we knew it just yeah. imploded. Yeah, it was a bit too much, maybe. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think we were in the in the reptilinks bit, and I I guess the, the just the suggestion to try and push boundaries and try different things and see how they go. Obviously, I'm not recommending that people, you know, if you have an equatorial critter that you go stick it in, uh, you know, a bunch of snow and see. Hey, let's see what happens, right? That we know that there isn't the physiology to support that interaction, right? That isn't a possible thing that would happen. And you're, you're going to, that's going to have negative consequences. But in terms of uh, looking at something like, Oh, reptilinks with fruit. Well, maybe that replicates at least, or at least you're to me, I guess, by increasing the exposure you offer to things that don't seem outwardly deleterious that you're probably increasing the likelihood that you're hitting factors that we're not even thinking about. Yes. No, I agree with you hundred percent on this one. Uh, Zach obviously does too. And it's kind of interesting off of this is I had a friend that was a hunter and every year he would take his excess deer sausage and actually pump it into small mice and then feed it to his breeder females, which I always found very interesting. But when you think about it in terms of the natural protein and 
I mean, we look at this as a food cycle, right? Mm -hmm. And you start to think about what we're feeding mice as a whole and pumping in that deer meat into the rodent. I mean, we're providing even more nutrients than what we could have ever imagined. Yeah. And, and then is that helping or are we just causing hypervitaminosis or is it totally irrelevant because the vitamins are things like vitamin C where you can't OD on it? You're just going to pee it out. But do they pee it out the same way a mammal pees it out because it's urates and it's not a liquid. It's a paste. You know, thinking this way, this is why I wanted to do the cosmic octopus talk is that a lot of times I feel like we can get bored with our collection and the way that we deal with the boredom is, well, I got to go get something new. And then you end up adding and adding and adding and adding and adding. And then you get to that overwhelm period of the, your herpetocultural career, which then leads to burnout, which then leads to like, I got to get out of here. And I, 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 one of the things that we promote with our podcast is like just being observing, taking it all in and that being part of the process and I think the cosmic octopus is what helps explain like that approach to keeping. Um, and it just, I'm not trying to be elitist in any way, just trying to change people's perspectives and a snake you've had for 20 years. If you start asking questions about its, its current setup, you know, how could I make it better? Uh, you don't do the um, care sheet cowboy approach. You actually like maybe read, book about it or you go on to iNaturalist and do what a lot of people do and you find like the places it is in nature and then you go and follow it up with weather spark and you look at the weather there uh and, and it just kind of engages you more and it might make you think about the keeping more and it might make you try something new and if you try something new it could work it could not work if it doesn't work and the animal's alive and it's none the worse for wear then you know you learn something that's just part of this process but this kind of keeping uh really I think makes herpetoculture so much more engaging, interesting, and most importantly, fun. And that's the way I like to keep. So like great example, I'm going to give him props. Justin Smith um, this week, within the week found out he had a gonosoma Jansen eye eggs. And I, I'm very familiar with those Jansen eye. <laughs> and um yeah, I, it's been fun watching Justin with those snakes. And he's a perfect example of this because I think when he got them initially, I don't know if they went right into a tub or they went in. When I say tub, I don't mean a rack tub. I mean tub with a uh, Brahms specialty enclosure glass door kind of situation. But, you know, he's a great example of what we're talking about here because he got the animals. And then first he had to figure out, like, how to get them to eat, how to, to get them established, how to keep them in their damn cage because they were – you know, little escape artists will throw that out there. Figured that out after you got him out of the closet a couple times. Uh, but, you know, that's part of it. You know, the cosmic octopus showed up we, and you got to outthink the snake, but you can't necessarily go at this like I'm an expert. So you get him established or it's growing. Then Justin decides, OK, I'm going to give him a lot of hides based off my observations. I'm going to give him all these plants. Don't have to be real plants, but I'm going to throw a pothos plant in there just for for kicks. Watching them. He's in tune with the animals. And then if you listen to him on uh, your episode with uh, Snakes and Stogies, he realized, like, because he's a student of the serpent, he's watched the things, they're not acting the same way. You kind of have that fear response, something's up. 
goes in, but he spent enough time with him to know something's up. Uh, lo and behold, there's eggs. And how did he get the eggs? He read and read and read and read and read and talked to people and discussed. I mean, I think he talked to you two, to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, when you keep that way, it's so much more rewarding when things go right than um, when you just basically go, okay, 80 degree hotspot, Aspen, tub, water bowl, mouse every Saturday. Like, you're not, forget about talking about the animal welfare here. As a keeper, you're just denying yourself so much enjoyment, if that's your your strategy. And that's where taking the notes comes into play, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, yes. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, one thing I've never really explored or talked about, maybe this will be a future episode, is um, burnout. I mean, <laughs> with within relative keeping of colubrids and chasing the dragon, you know, Chad started to talk about that, and I chased the dragon not with Asian rat snakes or anything of that matter, but um, this is going back probably 15 years now. And in terms of milk snakes, Hondurans, Nelsons, all kinds of stuff. And then I just realized, holy cow, I'm just not happy. And what am I doing? And, you know, and I really just went down the narrow minded path of what we're going to talk about tonight with Rob, which is porphyracea. And, I started keeping and, and growing numbers relative of each one of those um, subspecies, if we really want to call them subspecies for this matter, until we <laughs> actually really identify what's actually going on. But, you know, I started to experiment with things. I started to play with different variables of that. And I don't have a good feel for it, but that was my passion and love for that. Yeah. So. And that's a perfect segue to porphs, I think. So, any final thoughts on this, Rob? Since no, I think it's fantastic. I think really that's that's it. It's just the the humility to recognize what we don't know. All right, sweet. <laughs> so, um, porphyracea. Uh, Matt Matt obviously loves these snakes. I think Coxeye is in your a logo for Serpimetra, correct? Sure is. <laughs> and it's in that painting up there, right? So. Oh, nice. So, um, you were, Rob, you were at Pro Exotics and you were part of the like initiation or, or the, the first big wave of Porphys in, in North America. And then you've, I, I believe you've kept them independent of that. But for people interested in bamboo rat snakes, do you mind just giving kind of your view of the history of them entering the hobby? Um, how they got here, what the major like push was way back in the day. Like we talked about last week with Chad, how you had to buy a, a reverse trio at first and the price tag was pretty up there. But like, what was your experience in, with initially getting into this wonderful group of snakes? Yeah, 100%. My, my experience mimicked that of Chad. I think the my impression right was that klaus was the first to breed them as you guys talked about had yeah. gotten the tie the lowy province animals and produced from them uh in what probably 96 or so 95 to 96 somewhere in that range and he uh exported those through cameron to the united states and i believe those were the first well there were probably there were probably Viantai here that hadn't done that well before that would precede that well or 
precede that, right? So Wild Viante had come in, I'd imagine, before that, but those would fit into the box of things that historically didn't do that well. And in general, right, they're a little more muted, uh, particularly wild ones are more muted than cocci mm -hmm. that were just these fire engine red with twin, you know, racing stripe look, the, the real classic, the non-banded, the non-missing pattern look. And um, Klaus sent those to Cameron and they went to principally pro exotics and then some zoos in the United States. And I think he probably sent them, what, three or four years in a row. But the, the first ones that were sent, I believe, were 1998 model year. Ah, okay. And so was Klaus breeding them from wild-caught animals and then the progeny were what we were given here in the States? Is that basically how this worked? Yeah, 100%. As far as, as, far as I'm aware, right, Matt? I, he had, what, five, four or five original animals, I think. Yeah, it was five original animals where all captive-born stock up to a couple of years ago originated from, which is when you think about the prolificity of these animals and how many clutches they lay a year and how many eggs they lay, you really start to wonder <laughs> specifically on these animals. And, you know, we talk about inbreeding and people always are asking about getting unrelated pairs and things of that nature. No one ever knows, <laughs> you know, that, that that's always been one of my um, aspects when conversing about things like that is, we just don't have enough of that information. Yeah, wow. 100%. So, so the initial stock that, that Klaus has, or, or, or acquired, uh, obviously they're, they're field collected. Um, do either of you, through your various conversations or interactions with him, like did he ever talk about what it was like getting those animals from the wild established? Like, Were they nightmares, or did they just take right to captive environment like this is a spe these are animals that historically we don't keep warm um like was that was he in tune to that right off the bat or was this one of those whole trial and error cooking some oreo cryptophis to finally realize oh room temperature that's what we need to do like how how did those that that's the kind of stuff when it comes to this these kind of conversations that i really like the little nitty-gritty details so any idea on that yeah, I think there was some some familiarity. Certainly, what out of that original group, they all did pretty well. Uh, he so he did write an article in Soria on kind of the added, you know, the the process, the acclimation process, and initially getting that off the ground. And the funny bit is, you can actually see that one of the five wild ones that he got had the reduction in pattern trait. So where they start missing pattern along the neck, one of the wild animals pictured in that article is actually has that trait. So you can see see where yeah. that the genesis of that trait in our population. And and just like any of these wild caught first time species, I think a lot of it is just monitoring the animals and adjusting accordingly. You know, you start to learn a lot about the animal and Klaus never really went into much detail off of keeping it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of Klaus had sent me some pictures of like his keeping style over the years and how he changed things. You know, at one point in time, Klaus was producing hundreds, if not thousands of colubrids a year. And he kind of changed that because he was going away from the box, if you yeah. will, of, 
not only a rack system, but just having free flowing boxes throughout the room of just, you know, resourceful, useful boxes. And his style changed more towards what we see in herpetoculture overseas, which is you're living with the animals, which I think is a very cool style because he had terraria in an area on his walls with couches in the middle so he could sit <laughs> in his chairs and watch the animals, which is something that I always think, you know, um, living amongst the kept, you know, you're, you're really being inspired and learning about what you have within your own personal collection. That's really cool. So basically he went from a, not a sterile technique, but basically bins, tubs, and then ultimately evolves to the vivariums in the bookcase with, with the setups to like learn and observe and watch. Sweet. So from that, obviously we get the progeny um, and then those progeny are sent here. And then this you know, zoos, pro exotics. And is that when you got your introduction to them, Rob? Yeah, I had got well, so I had seen them in that general context uh, when they first had them, right? That was soon followed by them opening up the store. And, you know, I'd been in the area from then when they moved from Boulder down to Denver. And so going from, you know, the big grand opening and consistently going a couple times a week, you know, from, from then through through the whole time. So getting exposure in that way. And then I started working there in 2002. Um and they so they still still had some at that time, still had the rhinos at that time, which had kind of come at the same time frame. I think though so those, you know, similarly Klaus had, had pioneered along with the um the Tula herpetarium folks, right? And that so those were it's not some of that it's not exactly clear who had the first, but Nikolai Orloff, right, at Tula. Um, they had gotten the Russian Academy of Science animals from Tam Tao, and this was is all in a similar similar track. So that the rhinos were new in the U.S. in in ninety seven ninety eight at that same time frame, um, and so I certainly was seeing them. They were not accessible to me as a you know whatever a kid you know mm-hmm. um, a teenager. The you know things that were. $4,500 or $5,000 a tree, a reverse trio, as Matt and Chad talked about so so extensively. And we, I know both Matt and I have some thoughts on that. But um, the uh, yeah, so I was seeing them from that time frame, and then getting getting into them from there. I, possibly the first cocci I had actually were from uh, Fort Worth Zoo. Might have been Zoo Surplus from Fort Worth. The first ones that I had personally. So when it comes to keeping porphs, is the way we keep them today the way that American herpetoculturalists figured out how to keep them back in the day? Or was there an evolution between today and when they first showed up with this whole keeping? Well, let's just kind of go over their general husbandry in case there's people listening. They're like, what the hell is a porph? So (laughs) uh, that might be worth just throwing out there into the ether. Sure, a hundred percent, right? So the they were as of the original monogram, right? In what ninety five is that one? The monograms mm-hmm. from the um they were a Laffe and subsequently are Oreo Cryptophis porphyraceous and then 
what Karakse, Bayante, Latticinctus, yeah, mm-hmm. um, uh, Polkra, um, Polkra or Polkra, depending on obviously some of this, the mutation is associated with the Latinized ending of the scientific name. So we have lots of gender changes between Alafe yes. to Oreo Cryptophis, right? We have a gender change that causes the endings to change. So more confusion. Which not many people understand, which creates even further confusion yes. based upon masculine versus feminine. But that might actually be for maybe a more scientific talk. Yeah. Really? <laughs> Related to naming species. Yeah, yeah 100%. Um, so, yeah, the bamboo rat snakes all the way from, what, India through Nepal, up through uh, Southeast Asia, through Vietnam, yep. up into China. Um, and there, I, th- I think, the, the big issue that we've seen with these, right, is that a lot of the... Um, our initial exposure to these was based on a very limited data set of information. And I think a lot of things that were taken to be firmly conclusive were probably wrongly so because because of the limited universe of information we had or it coming second or third hand um so i think klaus right was going had exposure to being there and seeing things but a lot of anyone downstream from that right is taking it second hand and he did a really as to your initial question about uh, keeping them in captivity. I feel like he was re- very open with his information because I know even you know Robin and Chad, it wasn't necessarily that they were uh, intuiting how mm-hmm. to how to keep these successfully, but rather it was uh, Klaus being open with what was working at that point in time in terms of saying, yeah, keep these cooler. And then they, you know, to the, much to their credit, were kind of taking that and running with it, saying, okay, we we're living in a, a very temperate but volatile climate let's let's try and maximize what he's saying and take that to to really be true and see what we can do very cool so when it comes to the actual husbandry then and and this is for both both of you i feel like i'm kind of interviewing you both (laughs) because matt's part of this you know oreo cryptophis world as as well uh and all i have is a pair of pulcher that's it so um anyways Standard operating procedure care for for this group of snakes. Racks are oftentimes utilized. Heat or no heat, it, 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 like ambience, um, or keep them at eighty two during the day and drop them down to seventy five, or is like eighty two a death sentence? Uh, and I know we just got done bitching about care sheets. I'm not like promoting a care sheet here. I'm just trying to get gross generalities out there on the table. So. Yeah, Lots I think on that one <laughs> to me, and I'll, I'll be curious what Matt says to me, that's a little bit overstated. I find them to be room temperature critters that you would do well to offer a limited access into the low or even mid 80s. I don't find that to be problematic. And heck, I lived in Michigan and had a poorly insulated basement. And so, you, you know, obviously you're getting pretty humid, hot and humid in that context in the midsummer and, and didn't find them to be as sensitive as people generally think. I think if you're artificially heating them substantially heating them over most of the cage that that probably can easily go downhill and heck you could certainly cook one in a deli cup have it in the back seat of the car there's no question about that um but if you're generally just maintaining them i think room temp in the same way you almost would keep anything as a singular pet snake you you could probably do okay they depending on your ambient humidity 
You probably don't want to keep them on something that's soup that actually will actively suck moisture from them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Aspen in a place that has 20% relative humidity, that's probably a problem. Um, but you could keep them even in those conditions on paper. Maybe the, you know, their skin condition is going to suggest that you would do well to add a little, you know, a uh, spag box that, you know, moist, not damp, um, you know, or moist, not sopping wet, uh, sphagnum box to, to use if they want. But I think generally speaking, they're, they're pretty, um, they're pretty forgiving captives. Um, and really they have amazing, as we talked about, they, they have explosive reproduction if they're, it's in many ways it reminds me actually of stuff that I see with people keeping monitors, dwarf monitors is that, um, often they're, they're one of those things that we'll see around and available, but it's probably from a small handful of people that are doing really, really, really well with them. And then they're sort of being sold on and down the line. And, And that's not to suggest that they're hard, but it is to say that if you have them really dialed in and your conditions do well for them, then they have the capacity to produce in a way that you almost wouldn't believe something, you know, that would mimic like a Pueblin's milk snake, you know, sort of the, the reputation we see there where literally they can, you can have females that grow and lay completely healthy, fertile clutches before they're a year old. Alternatively, you know, if you're particularly on cocci, I find that cocci may be latisinctus to be true, but um, less so Vianti are just a slower, they're not at that pace, but the, the cocci are at that pace. Uh, Latisinctus a little bit, uh, probably a step down, but in a similar vein. Uh, I've only had poultry at Pro Exotics. The funny thing to me about about those snakes is that, and Matt will attest to this, from the mid-90s, other than Porphy Porphy, which is kind of the in, taken as meaning the form from India, um, mm-hmm. those things were the last thing to become available. Right, at least amongst oh, yeah. the stuff that's available now, those were the last to the party. They were very expensive. Come to what two thousand eight, Matt, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Yeah. Those were still those were imported for yeah. the f- first time. You know, from I think Klaus sent those to Cameron, right? And they were forty five hundred bucks a yeah. pair or something. You know, something they were a lot. Um, I think and they now, were more than forty five hundred. Yeah, they, I think they were like close to six grand a pair. They were a they were it was 50 maybe 5500 something like that yeah they were a lot um and and now those are the ones that you can be in a spot where uh, zach you're sitting there saying oh the only ones i have are these and those were <laughs> uh, for tw- you know almost tw- 15 to 20 years of porphyracia in the united states those were the ones again beyond porphy porphy we can get into whether those actually exist or whether they're the yeah. same as pulchra uh locality pulchra but uh uh, you know, ignoring that question, those were the last thing to come available. So those were the ones, all the, and all the one man, all the ones that Klaus sent those things. Man, they don't hesitate to bite the hand that's holding them, which is a relatively <laughs> rare feature in a, particularly in a rat snake. Yeah, the um, talking about care and and the nature of these animals in terms of relative keeping, I do think that part of the issue with keeping them is related to the respective humidity, bedding of the animal, airflow throughout the cage or rack system, and temperature. I I really think in some of these aspects, 
we do start to keep some of these animals too warm. And that and that's just not even just porphyracea, but just in generalities where with the pores, I, I tend to keep them at room temperature. I don't think keeping them too cool alters or degrades from their natural life. I actually think it helps with them because I think what ends up happening is we start to kill sperm as well as their their breeding behavior or cycle relative to that as keeping them a little bit cooler. I think it's better because they'll seek out warmer temperatures if necessary. So I tend to keep mine at room temperature. Um, I do offer, you know, heat, but the thermostat is set at 77 degrees. So Mm -hmm. relative to that temperature, you know, it's available, but are they utilizing it? Not so much. Where I think if we keep an animal, and this is just natural behavior and, and watching animals, if we keep an animal at a constant temperature and don't offer behavior or aspects for that animal to escape those temperatures and move from cooler to warmer, we limit that animal in terms of their natural behavior. Okay. And by having them just in a warm spot, that animal can't escape. And resultantly, we could be killing the sperm of a male and could also be part of the reason why we don't see more porphyracea. Because in 2012, memory serves me correct, I produced 600 cocci in that season. And I would imagine... (laughs) All those animals have sold, we would see more cocci, but we don't. And those animals were all sold, purchased, so where did they go? You know, like Rob said, I mean, I, I don't find them to be a difficult species to keep, but if we are limiting the availability to the cosmic octopus of natural resources, <laughs> you know, and they don't have those escapes, we really are limiting not only our keeping skill, but we're also limiting our growth in the hobby for knowledge of keeping different species, not only this particular, but other Asiatic rat snakes, montane boas, you know, across the board. So. Yeah, hundred percent. I think, I think that's totally right, Matt. I guess, you know, I'm viewing it when I say, because we're we're a hundred percent on the same page. It's just a question of extremes, right? Of saying what's my the the limited basking temperature that I'm offering them, or if we have a a daily fluctuation, you know, or a seasonal even daytime high, but down a big question becomes what's the nighttime low? What's our shift over time, right? What what rate of variation are we seeing, and is that offsetting so that they can get a little warmer during the day if they can get cooler at night? Right. What what do we have? What's our the totality of the system? I think there's something that does really well if you in a variable system, basically, huh. that has that has an option to get a cooler running variable system so that, OK, it's always going to be it's never going to be oppressively hot consistently because they are susceptible to stress. Right. I did it. The thing that always uh, I've come come to see that's always always makes me nervous is when people obsessively check their egg boxes 
right? So they're perpetually checking them. I had a lot of sync tests that I op happened to open up inadvertently, you know, well, intentionally, but inadvertently while she was in the act of laying. And that stressful interaction of me doing that caused her to, you know, become uh, dystocia, become egg bound. Yeah. Um, I took her into the the vet clinic at the university and um, because they were obvi obviously in there, I'd considered um, kind of what Kathy Love had talked about, right, of aspirating the eggs down to, to make them more um, easy to, to palpate out. There seemed like maybe, you know, within that time, even a very short window of time, there'd been some fixation to the, the tissue, the lining there. Um, but the point would be that, you know, I, I bring in the animal and I say, they have no idea what it is. And I'm saying, okay, please be very cautious with this. These are snakes that will stress easily and react very badly to that. And they take it away and they come back and say, oh, yeah, we coned it and, uh, you know, rotated the thing around and aspirated it and we pulled them out. And I was just like, well, that snake's dead. And yeah. <laughs> sure enough, I took it home, uh, you know, and 12 hours later, it just, the eggs were out. But I was like, well, the stress of that sounds horrific, right? And totally normative, even on a ball python, something that doesn't feel stress in that same way. So they certainly are susceptible to that, and they'll they'll even tell you with their skin condition, and just they'll they'll get a a withered, wrinkly look to them, and just look look bad and poor, you know. And as a reflection, even of seemingly psychological stress, who's to say? Um, but uh, I knew that it was like, wow, okay, just in the description of what you're telling me that you did that snake is going to, is going to be dead. And yeah, it was dead in 12 hours. And that they then followed up as the, you know, vet check or whatever, how to go. And it's, you know, it was dead as I <laughs> knew that it would be. Yeah. Oh, goodness me. So with, with these animals is we got all the different subspecies, which we've addressed in your experience, any dichotomies in keeping between the different taxa, is one I don't want to I don't use the word easier because I don't think that's the right word here, but is is there one that keep more wet, keep more dry? Are they all equally plastic in their requirements, or what's your opinions on on that? I ask back to the care. Yeah, to me, I don't, Matt. You know, you I'm, you might have a different feeling. To me, cocci are the the most forgiving in some way, the most sort of robust in general and most forgiving, most likely to feed really well and do really well. Um, the latticinctus are probably next, next in line there, but the, I guess, yeah, I would just present it as the cocci are the most like, if you have the conditions right, they will do fantastic. Um, yeah. The latticinctus is probably next. So those are from Indonesia. Uh, what Sumatra. Um, and then the poultures are interesting, right? Because they're just, to me, they seem physiologically smaller than the other forms, um, with, mm -hmm. you know, kind of cocci being the biggest. And latticinctus and viantai are relatively similar, and uh, poultures seem smaller. And, and that original batch were just all aggro. I don't know. Matt certainly have more experience. Maybe they're not all like that. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. When you mix all four of them together, you get like a super species, and that's like the hardiest <laughs> one of all of them. But no, all joking aside. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, you know, I, I agree with Rob here. I mean, cocci in generalities, 
are one of the more forgiving. And I think part of that has to do with their natural history and where they're found relative to temperature and climate. Um, Latisinctus are, are fairly similar as well. The Chinese poultra and lettuce or um, poultra and volanti are a little bit different. And I say that because you'll mm-hmm. typically see the animals go off feed and Volante especially will require a bromation period to actually breed successfully, where the other three do not require that. And even if you look at their natural ranges, it should make sense why Lettucinctus and Coxi don't require that. Yeah. Where I've made those comments on some of the Facebook boards relative to the Coxi and things like that is, you don't need to cool them. Um, you know, they'll breed year round because if you look at their distribution, they don't see the extremes of what Volanti and Pulcher would encounter. And this kind of goes back to the aspect of care sheets and generalities in terms of keeping some of these animals is knowing and learning about their natural history and ranges of where they're found can really exploit information on how to manipulate them in a captive environment. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I, I've noticed with the Paul Grant limited experience, so I represent the keeper that's just getting into them in this. But the Paul are definitely psychotic. I will say that. <laughs> I have them set up in a reptile basics rack, like it's at eye level. I keep putting the angry snakes for the ones that are at eye level, which is really dumb. And I mean, literally, like I'm six foot two and I got them stacked on top of each other and I'll pull out that rack and the damn snakes will like, they, they come out and they're ready to go and you need to dangle the small adult mouse and it's like, bam, bam, bam. And then they'll grab it and they don't, they do this crazy, like half hearted constriction thing, but I'm almost feel like it's just doing it to cause pain. Like, <laughs> because they'll drop the mouse and then go back, and then they're right back out there before I can close the tub, and I got to do this dance with mine. Um, and I actually like that. Like that—that's not something that makes me think they're they're bad. It's just they've been very interesting to keep. I, mine don't drop feed either. I don't know if that's something or just the individuals I have. I have to like if I drop feed, I don't. I pull the tub open the next day with the with the granite sample size two. Um, they, the mice are almost always in there. I have to do the literal antagonize, get them to hit the damn mouse two or three times. And usually by about the fourth time they, they bite it, do the chomp thing. And then, Oh, food. And then they'll, you know, gobble it down. So when it comes to feeding them, (laughs) do I have like (laughs) broken porphyrasia or, uh, is that kind of, Far for the course. Grant, granted, like I, I think I'm dealing with the exception, but I don't know. So, any Zach, you must, there? you must not have any dogs, do you? Well, I'll, well, I don't yeah. have dogs here, but I have an ancient dog that's barely alive. So, yeah, I was going to say I play fetch with my snakes. Oh. So that's what we do, you know. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's to me. That's the and Matt, you'll you'll know this even much better than I will. But to me, that's. Bionta and Pulcher are more finicky, whereas Coxi in particular in general are um, 
they're not lunatics, right? They, they have a focus to what they're doing and generally will eat pretty well. I think the whole group probably is sort of uh, would favor sort of a live nesting sort of situation. So if you had li- a whole handful of live peach fuzzies that you left in there, yeah. I think you probably would find a different result uh, as to whether <laughs> they're still in there. But uh, yeah. um, in general, cocci are very easy to feed off tongs but uh, and latticinctus more or less too. Uh, in my experience, but Viantai, yeah, Viantai and Pulcher were, yeah, I don't think yours are weird. I think maybe you just have the not ideal starter, which is, again, funny that those are the ones that are now around. Yeah, no, that's... Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree with Rob, especially on the nest raider aspect. You know, it's interesting when we really talk about a, a number of these Asiatic rat snakes, um, Porphyracea, Mandarinus, uh, Conspicillatus. What I have found over the years is that they oftentimes prefer smaller prey items than which we're willing to offer and multiples of smaller prey items. And I've even difficult feeders, you know, and some tips and tricks and things like that. And maybe in the coming months when we start pairing up animals and start hatching things. Maybe we'll do a tips and tricks of um, mm-hmm. colubrids, but the nesting aspect and some things that have actually worked out very well are even taking small deli cups, similar to like a three and a half ounce deli cup and putting a few small prey items in a cup and then allowing mm-hmm. that animal to naturally, you know, circulate the cage and find them and, hunt on that too as well and and that's something with some of the wild caught porphyracea over the years some of the animals that i've acquired from cameron like some of the pultra and things like that is some of those tricks worked out better than you know using live feeders Hmm. just because that animal's natural instinct was to search and look for nests I never thought about that. That's kind of cool. Imitating a, a rodent nest. Well, it makes sense because it, it, given their body plan, I mean, they are rat snakes. And the classic idea of rat snakes is moderate to large arboreal carnivore. I mean, they're all carnivore, but you know what I mean. Uh, but uh, with these guys, with Oreo cryptophis, it seems like, and I remember reading this in Klaus's book, that these guys are more of a fossorial on the, on the ground going in amongst like interstitial spaces between rocks and boulders right down there where the rodents are, are nesting almost more like our, you know, milk snake group, like they propelled triangulum or something like that. Um, and I, I found triangulum before after they've raided a nest in the field. And that's, that's crazy. One of the like wildest things ever is finding an Eastern milk snake. That's our lamp row that we have around here. Uh, and you see all the lumps in it, and I like, grabbed it instinctually, picked it up, and it regurgitates an entire vole family. <laughs> like, literally, like, one after it, like, just looks like little furry M&Ms coming out. Um, but I could see that Oreo Kratof is having that exact same niche, uh, or niche. So, so don't get, we don't want hookers to die. So anyway, uh, but anyway, no, that's kind of, that's really, really cool. Yeah, I think that's totally right. You know, that that reading on the body plan is correct. 
Mm. Cool. So when it comes to breeding, we're hearing brewmate, Valanci, other guys don't necessarily have to brewmate. I didn't really brewmate, giving the, the, the introductory keeper perspective. All I did was turn off heat. And I don't even know if that caused that that contributed at all, but I had a rack that had um they were in there and my got Madagascar Ophis were in the same rack. And I knew that they both could it's not gonna hurt them, but I like weak brumation. But what we're hearing now, and I've seen you have com- conversations, Matt, online about this, which is always funny for me to watch. No brumation, like so if we want to breed these things kind of like my false water cobras or dipsadids in July, if they have the right body condition, go for it situation 100 percent. you know it it's very interesting and this is something i mean rob and i we've talked about and just in terms of conversations is if the animals are healthy they will breed (laughs) one of the biggest issues in this hobby is everyone is fixated on the weight of an animal (laughs) <laughs> I don't know where this comes from. I don't know how or why we we compare these things. But I've had cocci breed at one year of age and were two and a half to three feet long. And I've had cocci that have bred at three to four years. I think one of the biggest aspects in terms of breeding behavior or introductions to this is are the animals feeding well? Do they have good body weight? What is their overall condition? Because if you do not have one of those um, attributes at an optimal condition, you're setting up the animal for failure. Mm. And on top of that, when you breed animals too young, especially the first time, you're increasing the risk with the egg laying, you're also putting the male at risk because the male could have issues with prolapse as well as just feeding behavior afterwards too because um, the breeding behavior increases stress on the animals. And I would even say be careful of improperly sexing porphyrasia and putting in two males together because males will actually kill each other and that's interesting like rip the epidermis of the animal off to death whoa mine's blown right now so have you seen this not that you sit there and are like all right kill each other but like (laughs) accidentally putting together or, or something to that effect I've done it on accident. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Rob, have you ever seen it or? Uh, I've seen it with rhinos. I haven't seen it with, I don't, I guess I haven't messed up any porphys on it, but uh, yeah, certainly <laughs> putting, um, and haven't really doubled up single, like males on a single female or something like that, where you're getting some of that responsivity to it. Certainly they're very, you know, thigomorphic. They respond to being touched by other, either things or, you know, uh, other conspecifics. So hundred percent there. Uh, I think that's great stuff, you know, that Matt was laying out there uh, to me, the, the body condition. Well, and the other thing that jumps to mind, right, is it actually reminds me again of the dwarf monitor situation where um, just because some of them can like 
you know, Frank Reed is someone who's very attuned to what he's doing, right? With these specific species, it's like, oh, he's breeding again, same, same exact, exact situation where the females laying eggs at under a year, but that's the exceptional animal. And you're talking about having a huge sample size. And this is the one that just did great from day one. And I've, I've, that was the case with the cocci that I had that would be in that spot where it was just literally every, just super responsive and fell into that pattern. That's probably what Matt five to 10% of the ones that can, that can be in a spot to do that, but they totally, you know, it's, uh, they're capable of doing it. It's just, um, it certainly wouldn't be the recommendation if you have a pair of them. (laughs) Gotcha. All right, sweet. So the infamous question for all baby colubrids, because they come out smaller than we want them to, getting these little guys to go. Uh, I When I catched out my clutch, I had a hell of a time getting them to eat, but they did. Uh, is this a species, or, or you know, with the subspecies, is there one, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of picking up the vibe, cocci and um, latisinctus are the, are the, the the the, ease, the introductory levels and that I was the idiot that was like ooh pretty because that was literally how I made my decision <laughs> and picked the hard one to get you know into this whole thing with but uh getting them going after they well getting them going and incubating eggs so are these just so getting them going I don't find them to be hard no compared to other things that we consider to be hard I don't think they're hard yeah um. Matt, what do you think? I, I don't find, you know, Cox, I love a no, live pink, no, a small I, live pink. You know, Latisinctus love a small live pink. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. Bionti a little yeah, bit fussier, you know, but yeah. Yeah, I um, they'll all eat live readily. They all love to hunt, okay. per se, that natural perspective. Uh, over the years, what I have found and have heard and have talked to people is – I really wonder at what stage of temperature for incubation people are keeping and Mm -hmm. monitoring or incubating eggs at, because my perspective is that we're seeing incubation at relative high temperatures, which is causing some of these animals to be a little bit more finicky in terms of starting. But I also think that, relative to starting some of these different species that or subspecies, if you will, um, on pinks, I think the aspect is, you know, after acquiring a new animal, most people will get the animal shipped and that creates stress. And obviously we want that animal to then get acclimated to its new environment. And after that acclimation period, you know, the animal starts to feed readily. It's interesting in, in conversation, especially with a number of new keepers is, you know, they may have acquired a snake right away and immediately after acquisition, like 24 hours, they're trying to feed the animal, which also induces stress on the animal because they're not in tuned with their environment, which can either further create other psychological stress to that animal too as well so the hard part is is like feeding animals and starting animals and acquiring new animals yeah i mean there there's so many variables that go into this um and rob i mean definitely you know preach preach the prayer here man because you know as well as i do i mean a lot of this stuff 
unfortunately gets misidentified or reviewed in different manners where we make things more complicated than what they are. Yes. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I totally agree. Crazy, crazy. So final thing we'll talk about, and then we'll, we'll wrap this whole thing up. This has been a fun one. Um, is today's Oreo Cryptophis, uh, just because it says it's Pulcher doesn't mean it's Pulcher. So, you know, with with all this being said, is there, do we want to talk about purity? <laughs> like, what's what's out there now? Um, I, I mean, I go to, to my local show and, and I'll see these, they're almost always one-offs. It's kind of strange. Um I'm not talking about Tinley or, or a bigger show. I'm just talking about local shows around the country. Uh, and I always I would wonder, talk about every show. Every show. Okay, cool. <laughs> so let's like hit hit this this nail just like straight on the head. Since you guys both have copious amounts of experience, what's your opinion on that? If I'm buying a pulcher off a random table, what do I need? What's the likelihood of that actually being pulcher? Especially since I just found out that the year well. Like 12, 13 years ago, that snake was $4,500. And when I got mine way back in the day, I think they were like $200. <laughs> you know, that was it. Hey, Rob, before you answer, I'm going to let you go first. But this is Zach's big push for a graduate student. So if you weren't listening <laughs> at the first 10 to 15 minutes, he has a research project available. And yeah. Rob, you can answer. <laughs> the uh, Yeah, so I would say that... Uh, I think in general, maybe the poultry, right? Some wild, some, the wild stuff was coming in and there was some captive hatch stuff that came in. A lot of synctus, maybe there was some captive hatch stuff from 10 years or so ago, 10 to 12, 15 years ago uh, that we started seeing. To me, cocci, unless you're buying them from Matt, I wouldn't trust it, particularly if they look weird at all. If they're not solid racing stripe on a kind of fire engine red critter. Um, Biante, Biante have always seemed more legitimate, though you get it, it's much less clear whether you're talking about Chinese or Vietnamese animals. Um, but those, for the most part, it doesn't seem like those have been in the mix nearly as much. I would say that the the ones that I'd be most concerned about are coxine, as to whether they actually are what they're proclaimed to be. And if they look weird at all, then that's, if they look weird at all, or much worse, if you get three, two or three or four years down the track and they start throwing stuff that looks weird at all, that would give me a lot of pause. Yeah, I would, I definitely agree with Rob here on a number of these aspects because even eight years ago, um, I think that was probably the last shipment Cameron had brought in from China, maybe nine, nine years ago. Um, the Pultra and Volantai, I acquired a number of them because it's a numbers game, especially with wild caught species. And there are misrepresentations in the hobby. And I think what has happened is people have bred for intellectual curiosities themselves, wondering, you know, what happens when I breed this to this, what does the animal look like? Because at the species level, right. I mean, when we think of porphyracea, I mean, yes, can they breed together? Yes. 
but should we do this is kind of a moral or ethical question. But even more so, I think what the hard part is now presently and the issue that we're facing is the moral encompass, but also the financial gain that Mm -hmm. the hobby eludes itself to. And what I think we've seen is um, people paid an outrageous amount of money for some of these integrates that were available. And then now as a current locality is of interest, purity is of ish of uh, interest. And the problem is, is when you start to put a financial number on an animal, just because that is what people are advertising or saying doesn't mean that's actually being represented properly. And I say that because when you look and if you do research, all this information is publicly available. How is it that someone can publicly offer animals six months before as volanti poulter crosses and then in six months, now they're pure volanti or pure poulter. So what happened in six months that, <laughs> that created this um, genetic change, if you will, or re- representation? And this to me is kind of a moral encompassing issue of just, it is a hobby. If this is what you want to do in terms of crossing them, you just need to be honest because what happens is you have people that want to keep these lines pure and we want to keep those lines pure for future generations going forward and misrepresenting those animals creates further complication in the hobby itself. Gotcha. Yeah, hundred percent. And it reminds, you know, we see this all the time in the Morelia stuff, all these different communities. And uh, for a long time, Right. It was sort of defended with the position that, well, I'm honestly representing what I'm doing. Well, here's the thing. You can look back on Mexicana complex stuff in the 1980s and a lot of people were, you know, maybe they were honestly representing those things. If you don't have a a very specific uh, individual and lineage and sort of tracking that relationship, you can't trust a therai that it's purely a therai. You cannot because it's been, you know, 35, 40 years at this point and absent a few very specific exceptions. If I see something labeled as a therai on a random table at a show, I have no faith at all that that's true. You know, and that, I think that's well, the aspect, the, the, the longevity to some of this stuff. I think it's we underestimate that or people who are willing to make those um to cross those boundaries and say, oh, but I'll be honest about what I'm doing. And, hey, the guy who bought it from me said he'll be on it. Sure, but 30 years is a long time and a lot of time to lose track of what's what and whether you can really have confidence in that. And you can argue that the whole thing doesn't matter, right, that there are snakes yeah. in boxes and that it doesn't matter. And that's totally fine. But if you if you want to have respect for that, if you you know acknowledge the, the other side of that argument – then, you know, fundamentally, one denies the other the right to exist, right? That's that's the that's the hard part about saying, oh, yeah, well, I'm, you know, you do you, is that it's like, sure, but uh, going forward, if there are no new inputs to the system, 
you're you actually are making it less and less feasible for someone yes. to have the alternate view. No, well, you're you're literally making it impossible biologically to have the purity if you only have X amount of founding stock or X amount of genetic, I don't know, independence, and then you 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 muddy that water with mixing. You, you, you'll never have homozygosity. You're going to have permanent heterozygosity. That's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. Well, and there's, you know, it's so interesting is you can, to the watchful and experienced eye, you can easily identify when you have crosses. Um, you know, I, I posted pictures a while back and, you know, some of this stuff has been spread out, but as a gift, someone had given me an animal that was fourth or fifth generation in lineage, but had all four subspecies included, <laughs> you know, so coxi is Pultra volanti, and they just kept crossing it and crossing it. And it was very interesting to observe, photograph, keep for a while, but I had no personal binds of wanting to continue that with that. Yeah. Because, you know, things that distinguish or phenotypically identify these animals, I mean, even with pure cocci, this gets commonly asked is like, how do I determine that this animal is pure, blah, blah, blah. And you can tell when you start to cross these different subspecies, because if the cocci do not have just pure dorsal stripes and they start to have banding, if that banding exceeds those stripes, then the animal is very unlikely to be pure. And you start to see this representation not only there, but you see it in the head structure. You see it in some of the um, features, even the coloration of the animal, because, you know, there are different shades of the, um, the red or orange representation in these different subspecies and to the careful eye, you can start to see pattern differentiation and lattice synctus or pulture when they start to be influenced by other subspecies. And there are a lot of questions. And unfortunately, I think part of it is just convoluted now in the, the hobby and the representation just based on, well, what happens when you start to cross these subspecies and then start to breed them back to other things, you're going to start to bring out some of those characteristics similar to, you know, the corn Honduran crosses, you know, you are going to bring out some of those different characteristics. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's a hard point. I mean, morally and ethically to the future of our hobby. And I think it even more so brings towards the fact of, Honesty. Yeah. I mean, more or less, you know. Well, damn. I feel like that's a good place to to end it. <laughs> Be honest, people. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, yeah. I think we covered everything with the porfs. Um, Rob, anything else you want to add? No, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I think it was fantastic and great chatting about it. It's probably the most porf-specific content that there is on a podcast, as far as I know. And there's even even more we can chat about in the future. But I think that's a that's a good stopping point for now. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, if people want, if you want, if people want to find you, how do you recommend they do that? Um, my website that I'm sort of in the process of updating or fully modifying to be more about field herping photos and things is uh, highplainsherp.com or rhinorats.com. Go to the same place and highplainsherp on Instagram. Awesome. 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 Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was fantastic. And I will continue to preach the good gospel of the cosmic octopus. So fabulous. There we go. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you can find me at um, Dr. Crawdad on Instagram, uh, Zach Loafman on Facebook. And then uh, you can always reach out to me professionally uh, through um, my email, zloafman at westliberty.edu. And if you made it this far, Grad students, potential grad students, reach out. Seriously. Uh, lots to do, and I want to do it. So uh, it's always a good time to begin, and right now is the time to start. So please, please do that. And then, Matt, where can they find you at? Uh, you can find me at Serpamitra on Facebook and Serpamitra USA and Instagram, or email me at matt at serpamitra.com. All righty. I hope you don't have, you're, you're not driving thousands of miles across Indiana next week. Maybe life can settle down a bit for you. Sure, uh, I'm going to Michigan next week. Oh, okay. Holy never mind. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Um, okay. Well, this has been another episode of Colubrid and Colubrid Radio. We're, we're proud to be part of the Marilia Python Network. And with that, have a great one.